Sharing Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the Washington Free Beacon, Public Discourse, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions, while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. Today, we continue our series on American identity and culture with William Alexander Percy's 1941 book, Lanterns on the Levee. Next up will be Norman Petoritz's Making It. Our guest today is Elizabeth Amato. Elizabeth is an associate professor of political science at Gardner-Webb University in North Carolina. She earned her bachelor's degree at Berry College and her doctorate at Baylor University. She's written a book called The Pursuit of Happiness in the American Regime, where she discusses authors including Nathaniel Hawthorne, Edith Wharton, Walker Percy, and Tom Wolfe. Her scholarly interests include politics, literature, film, happiness, moral education, and American political thought generally. She's an expert on Walker Percy in particular and has written about his critique of the alienating character of the American pursuit of happiness. Well, welcome, Elizabeth Amato. It's a pleasure to have you on the Enduring Interest podcast. Well, thank you so much, Flag, for inviting me here. Oh, it's great. Um, I'm glad I came up with the idea. <laughs> so we're here to talk about William Alexander Percy's Lanterns on the Levee. Maybe first just tell us where where and how you initially encountered this book. It's um I guess uh it's it's kind of fits into the purpose of the podca- podcast in the sense that I think it is kind of often overlooked and somewhat neglected, but I do think it's it's regarded as a as a kind of literary classic in some circles. So just tell us how you stumbled on it. Uh, certainly. I, I encountered um, William Alexander Percy indirectly, twice removed almost. I, I was an undergraduate at Berry College, and one of my professors was uh, Peter Augustine Lawler. And one of Dr. Lawler's uh, favorite writers was Walker Percy, William's cousin and then adopted son. And for and I I started working also as a student worker for for Dr. Lawler, and he told me that I needed, that must have been a tough experience in some ways. It, it kind of was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, um, I saw his office. Oh oh, it was a disaster. <laughs> uh, it, it really was. Finding your way into the room was was, was interesting enough. Um, but he told me I needed to read Walker Percy. And so I did. I usually did everything that Dr. Lawler told me to do. Uh, if we're going to talk about, you know, teachers, which I know we're going to eventually with uh, with William. And I really enjoyed reading Walker Percy. I read The Moviegoer and Lost in the Cosmos. But as I was a student worker for Dr. Lawler, one of the things that he had me do was uh, read his, his writings that he was going to uh, publish. And one of the things that Lawler enjoyed doing was bringing William into conversation with Walker uh, in his essays as a uh, contrast. Walker Percy uh, embraced the Catholic faith that his uh, un- his um, uncle eventually uh, rejected. And uh, Walker uh, engages thoughtfully with uh, his uncle's stoicism and sort of aristocratic tendencies. And Lawler liked to draw that contrast. 
And so it was uh, uh, by engaging in, in Lawler's writings, uh, I was curious about reading Lanterns myself. And so I did. That's great. That's great. So you brought up Walker already. Uh, mm -hmm. I figured he would come up early in the conversation. There's this wonderful, and I think you probably have the same uh, edition that I do. Do you have the LSU? Yeah, yeah. It had the LSU editions for our listeners has uh, a wonderful, pretty short, lively introduction by by Walker Percy. And at the end of that introduction, Walker says that William Alexander Percy was the most extraordinary man he'd ever know. So first question, before we dive into some of the particular passages and details and characters of the book, just a general question, what makes William Alexander so extraordinary? What what do you think struck Walker as um, making his his uncle such a such a strange, wonderful influence on on his own life? Uh, well, the first thing um, is what Walker says uh, about his own relationship with with Will with regards to adopting him. Walker's father committed suicide. And as and and Walker's father had uh, Leroy, excuse me, had been William's favorite cousin. Right, they were only two years apart in age, and the death of Walker's father was a heavy blow. And on one of um, William's trips to Europe, he stopped in Athens, Georgia, where Will uh, Walker and his uh, two brothers and mother were living and invited them to come and live with him in Greenville, Mississippi. And this was an extraordinary act of generosity. William was a, a lifelong bachelor. He was also an exceptionally wealthy man by this point in his life, in his 40s. He enjoyed traveling. He enjoyed inviting artists over uh, to his house. And he brought into his house uh, three small children. And eventually, um, very tragically, uh, their mother dies and he adopts them and he takes the raising of these children uh, very seriously. And I think it's in part, part that act of generosity. It's an extraordinary act of generosity for anyone to do on a personal level for another. But it was also William's extraordinary sense of care and responsibility that he exerted on their behalf for their education. Uh, that he took very seriously moral education. Uh, William read, and he did not read merely for amusement, people like Marcus Aurelius and the ancients, he engaged with them, and it was important to live the life of virtue. And he he meant it in a way that, you know, I might casually quote Marcus Aurelius or something in an essay, and it's kind of adorable, but he he tried to live this life. The wintry, unassailable citadel of Marcus Aurelius was the firm, hard foundation of steadiness in an unsteady and ultimately tragic world for uh, William uh, Percy. And it, it is a, uh, he wanted to teach the kids the good life. And as he knew it, and that ultimately he taught them that theirs is to, to do right, even though it is not easy and it will often be uh, futile potentially in this world. And you may not get the world's good opinion for it. To do right is what one ought to do. The care of one's soul is one's highest concern. Uh, an extraordinary statement and, and to really try to live this life. Yeah, he... 
you reminded me of actually a passage that comes later in the in the book. Um, it's in the actually in the chapter where he actually first deals with the uh, the adoption of the of the three boys, and he's talking about how to educate them and what to do about their education immediately. And and he says, in my day, this is a, a quote from page three eleven. In my day, education had been a disagreeable discipline by which one acquired, if susceptible, strength of soul and delight of mind. Yes. Now education is regarded as an easy but expensive aid to crashing society or procuring a better job. I love that combination, strength yeah. of soul and delight of mind. So it seems that he ha he had uh, he was pretty successful in passing that along to to Walker, I guess. I think so. I think so indeed. Um, uh, let me, if I may, just add this other delightful quote here. Because and this is on page uh, three three thirteen, virtue is an end itself. The survival virtues are means, not ends. Honor and honesty, compassion and truth are good, even if they kill you, uh, for they alone give life its dignity and its worth. And that that is a remarkable found ethical foundation, um, and that one that he also promotes in this book. It it is in a way a public education for for the readers of this book. Yeah. So you maybe before we, one more one more detail on kind of the theme that we're talking about. You in your initial characterization called Will Percy uh, an aristocrat and a stoic. Mm -hmm. So the combination of those two things make him a, a kind of singular figure. Can can you say, I guess, a little bit more about that combination and where and how it shows itself and, and kind of how he lived his life and what he did? Certainly. Well, I use I use the, the the term aristocrat in a kind of a loose sense, right? Uh, the United States uh, does not have sort of titled aristocracy uh, the the way that uh, many European countries do or used to, but in the sense that uh, Will was part of the the old South. Uh, he was born in 1888. Uh, and his family were uh, slaveholders on plantations. They were very wealthy. And that the South, more than any other region of the United States, approximated aristocracy. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville famously characterized the South as uh, England reproducing its aristocratic um, habits, formations, and social structure in the United States. And Will was part of that. So he was aristocratic in the sense that he belonged to a higher social class, and he was proud of it. He, uh, at one point early in the book, he said that he was proud not to be of the demos. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so He's aristocratic in that sense. I, I would even add that he was aristocratic in a sense that's less familiar to us as Americans, that he really thought that his uh, way of life represented the rule of the best. The the life of uh, aristocracy, meaning, of course, uh, rule of, of the best, that, that excellence was the title to govern and mm -hmm. to and that he he truly believed that. He was stoic in in the sense that he and this is this is actually maybe I should back up with an adorable story that he tells from his his youth, um, and this is in some of the earlier chapters. So this will be maybe a nice uh, sort of transition. He relates that as a small child, uh, they were serving ice cream, and as the si ice cream was was being given out to the children, uh, it the ice cream ran out as it came to his bowl. 
and he received none. And he said, this was my first experience with injustice in the world. Uh, for one is not born a stoic. And <laughs> so it took him a while to get to the to get right. to find the stoicism. <laughs> right. One one can be born an aristocrat, but one cannot be born a stoic. Uh, becoming a stoic takes a, a lifetime of, of reflection and endeavor. Um, especially I would add, especially where there's ice cream involved. Yes. Stoicism might be difficult. Oh. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> he, um, in particular, what he admired from Stoicism was its reliance on, on building the interior, on establishing a inner unassailable citadel. At the very end of the book, he calls it finding a fastness within, fastness within oneself, something steadiness of soul and purpose that was unassailable regardless of what life may throw at you. Uh, that life was in a way opportunity for noble action, uh, but ultimately it ended in defeat. It was a lonely life. There's a reason why the book is called Lanterns on, on the Levee. Uh, this, this actually comes from, if I may just reach to this to describe this point a little bit better, it is on page 250 or 247, excuse me. Each guard walks along and the tiny halo of his lantern makes our fearful hearts stouter. He describes in this um, line how men used to walk the, the levee doing guard duty to check for uh, bulges or, you know, potential leaks. And that these were individuals that walked alone. They're only with their lanterns and on the guard. And this is how he saw himself, this pattern of life that he believed was the best way of life, that one should build up one's interior, not the exterior, as he saw so much of America striving to do, but to face the ultimate tests of life, whatever those may be. And then, of course, death itself. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's a great passage. So let's dive into some of the particulars of the of the book in terms of the people and his childhood and education and all that. One element of, of the book that I noticed in, in rereading it this time around to prepare for the podcast was I was really struck by how it's a portrait of, of a vanishing world. You know, you have the sense that he's uh, ill at ease with with a lot of the changes that he's witnessing. At one point, he says he was witnessing the disintegration of the moral cohesion of the South. Um, and so he's he's trying to kind of adapt what he's learned from his ancestors and his own character to the kind of new realities as he finds them. And so one thing that he does early in the book is just talk about the Delta, the region, um, kind of the, the place in a kind of sociological sense, and so maybe start by just reflecting on deepening your portrait of what you already did, um, emphasizing kind of his aristocratic, you, you know, he's he's a member of this planner's upper class. Um, where Where is this planner's class vis-a-vis -vis the other the other um, elements of of kind of the sociological makeup of this of this region? And we'll, we'll start with that and then and then dive into kind of his education. 
Uh, sure. The, the beginning of the book where he describes the Delta is uh, sonorous and one of the most uh, beautiful parts of the book. This is really where you can tell that he's a poet. Uh, for for there's a great deal of romance to being in the Delta where you're kind of like, ooh, that sounds wonderful. And you're like, oh, but it's probably hot and muggy there. Uh, <laughs> at least that that's my second thought upon reading it. But he does. He he describes a vanishing world. Uh, his, his writing reminds me a lot of uh, sort of British interwar period writings about a kind of uh, decline, um, a sense of loss in that respect. And so he is also preserving uh, for us, a world that that is fast vanishing. Um, and he begins with the land. And I think this is an important thing for him to do because the way of life is connected to the land. Greenville was situated on uh, the Mississippi. It's a port city. Um, and so there's elements of both uh, uh, the business of the river, but also the farming of the land. It's from the land, life emerges. Uh, it establishes the social and economic relationships of, of all the persons there. Uh, it is also no accident that the last chapter of the book is called Home, and it is in a way a return to the land. It, it ends in a graveyard. Um, to have a home is to have a place to be buried. Um, and so that bookends his whole story, where where life emerges from in in the area, but also where where we end up. And Will describes uh, Greenville as a sort of a bustling area. Uh, he notes that to use a term that he would have never used, it's diverse uh, ethnically and and racially it, it has immigrants from um uh, china there are jews living there italian immigrants irish um who make up part of of the city however ultimately he says that it really just comes down to three groups of people and these three threads he argues forms the backbone of not only greenville but the whole of the the american south um, the basic fiber, as he calls it. And this is on page 19, and I'll just read this little bit here. The cloth of the Delta population, as of the whole South, was built of three dissimilar threads, and only three. First were the old slaveholders, the landed gentry. Second were the poor whites. Third were the blacks. And so he, he describes how these three groups interact. And this is some of the harder parts to, to read in Will Percy when he discusses uh, the relationship of these three groups to each other. Will was, what, by any understanding today or otherwise, was uh, a white supremacist. Uh, he, he claims this. Uh, he speaks that uh, African-Americans are, in a way, um, inferior. They are in ultimate need of the white uh, gentry's uh, protection. Uh, they need education to be um, educated and, and raised up over time from what he calls uh, their barbarous ways. He has some uh, complimentary comments uh, that, that I hope we can, I'll, I'll bring out in just a moment as, as well, but his greatest contempt is for poor whites. Uh, he has almost nothing nice to say there uh, at all, he notes that their labor lost dignity when Blacks were freed because they are now in competition with them, and as such, they hate 
Blacks. And so they do things like riot and lynch in order to make themselves feel superior. And he talks about them being inbred. Um, and, and, and like I said, he has really nothing at all complimentary to say about poor whites whatsoever. On, on Blacks, he has an interesting comment. And let me see if I can pull this up where he talks about work again. It's on page 23. And he says that none of them feels that work per se is good. It is only a mean to idleness. Leisure is the word in white circles. The theory of the white man, uh, no matter what his practice is, the reverse. He feels that work is good and idleness being agreeable must be evil. And he continues saying that he prefers the Black way of doing things, right? That Blacks understand that work is not an end of in itself. Work is a means to something else. And, and I think Percy plays with the meaning of, of idleness here, uh, but he does mean that we should... Uh, leisure often looks like idleness to others, right? Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. He describes how having conversation or playing witticisms or standing around may, may look like idleness to those on the outside, but in fact, it might be the highest form of leisure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. He, um, I would add too, just to flesh out the, I mean, as you said, he's, he's unapologetically quite openly a white supremacist in the precise sense of that of that term he's also though an uh, an open enemy of the Ku Klux Klan he, he talks um, there's a whole chapter devoted to the Klan in the book he's an enemy of the new I would say kind of white supremacist populist demagogic rise of that kind of politician his father has this battle with a Vardaman the senator we can talk about that that later so uh, on the one hand, it's it's not complicated. He's a white supremacist and has retrograde racist views a, a, about blacks. On the other hand, his kind of paternalism and the way he sees himself and his sense of duty and his own under self-understanding with respect to leisure and work, right, complicates this this portrait and, and kind of shows you that, um, you know, he, he doesn't really fit into many of the categories you might you might describe to him as you're thinking about you know race relations in, in the old south um so it's it can be a, a frustrating uh a book and a shocking book you know to read some of these opinions but um i think it's complicated and and strange enough that um you know it, it doesn't it doesn't um mean that the book isn't worth worth reading or that you should um you know his his racial views should make you kind of dismiss him and um, and think about this. And as you as you mentioned in your introduction, you know, Walker Percy, you know, was well aware of his of his Uncle Will's uh, views and and didn't like them. And um, the, the episode I did previously actually in, in the series was about Albert Murray. And in the chapter where Murray describes him meeting with Walker Percy, he talks about um, Will Alexander Percy's book and and you can see that Murray is attracted um, by some of his reflections about what the South was like, but of course Murray is is completely appalled by his views of of um, of the black race. So it's a it's a complicated complicated story, but um, but an interesting one. Um, I'm sure, we'll come back to the issue yes. of, of race later in the in the episode. But why don't we dive in? Um, 
and talk about um, this question of, of ancestors and teachers. He has a strange education initially, like to the extent that it was formal, it was largely through tutors. He goes on to the University of the South in Suwannee. Um, so just, yeah, talk whatever you want to dive into as far as teachers and ancestors. Um, let's, let's walk through some of that interesting stuff. Uh, certainly. Percy begins uh, by discussing the um, his earliest teachers, and he gives them all, all their credit and all their due. And, and I think this is one of the most uh, Marcus Aurelius uh, points in, in the book, that like Marcus Aurelius's uh, meditations that begin with the description of his debts, uh, Will begins with his debts. Uh those who raised him, educated, shaped him, taught him justice, liberality, self-government, temperance. In so doing, he, he reminds us that, you know, we are not self-made, but we we owe who we are to others. Um, and we are born into a world already thick with obligations and duties. Um, others cared for us, for us and suckered us. And so we are obliged to do the same for others. And it, it, it's a really beautiful uh, presentation he gives of his teachers uh, in his youth. Each portrait he draws is gives you an image of this person, like a character, like a like a like a real person, I should say. And well, I guess I was thinking it was kind of Dickensian, and it's kind of uh, the image of these people really do come come to life, and what what they imparted to him, and how they impressed him, and left marks on on who he is. And how he talks, for example, about his uh, paternal grandmother, uh, Murr, as he called her, who, who clearly died when he was a very young boy, that she she read books to him and, and taught him the permanence of human nature, uh, like Huckleberry Finn and Allison in Wonderland. Uh, and he praises her for not having wished to teach him the practical arts or mere ideological teachings, uh, but to delight in stories and music and to truly prepare him for the liberal education that he would receive his whole life in the sense of liberal education making one free on, on the inside. And, and just to, before I go into a few of these other portraits, um, one of the other striking things about each educator, each teacher, or even each family member that he he brings into view is that in many instances, he gives us images of their death, that he he describes to us how how they ended. And and for will, this is this is high praise. Uh, that they lived full and good lives and then they met their ends with with dignity and steely-eyed resolve. Uh, in the face of life's last um, battle and, and how we sort of demonstrate our, our metal and steadiness of soul. Um, and he uh, describes his uh, paternal or yeah, maternal grandparents and, and how they uh, met their ends with the indignities of death, but met them most steadily. I should also begin with his his ancestors. He has a colorful ancestor. This this Don Carlos, this this rogue and this scoundrel, uh, who who settles in the area, uh, who um, seems to have had more than one wife. Which uh, Percy finds a great deal of amusement in in this colorful ancestor. 
uh, who kind of settles in in this area and 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 started really the, the the Percy family. He delights in that. He tells us about his heroes as a small boy. They were really just uh, in large part his his dad's uh, local politicians. Uh, but from them, he learned the the burdens of of leadership, as he described it. That public service goes often unappreciated more than not, and and this marked him uh, quite a bit. Listening to these these men talk about politics, apparently they heartily disliked William Jennings Bryan, approved of Grover Cleveland, disliked the Silver Standard, these kind of things, but. This is an important moment, I think, because he talks about absorbing from them this idea that the intelligent and disinterested few must fight effectively or hopelessly for the public wheel. And I think this really shapes how he he grows up, that this is ultimately what he does in his own life. Um, his great ambition is is to to do that on behalf of of Greenville and and on others. To to sort of return to his formal uh, education, yeah, he he's raised. He go, his parents first send him to uh, a Catholic school. They pull him out as soon as it turns out he's getting a little too religious. <laughs> Said he wanted to be a priest. <laughs> right. <laughs> They they then give him a series of tutors, starting with uh, Judge Griffin, um, who taught him all. He gained knowledge of of every world, but this one, uh, that's what he's how he describes Judge Griffin. Um, and what he's conveying, or what Will is conveying about about the judge, is that he was a poor man, uh, that that he was rich in knowledge of so many things and rich in so many ways, but but poor in this world. Poverty is also one of these themes that that uh, that Will returns to. It's how he describes uh, Mr. Bass, his next tutor, who who um, was a gardener, um, who uh, discreetly and quietly kept fed many families in in the area, but who also died ultimately poor. Um, same for Father uh, Kozenbrock, uh, the Dutch nobleman priest who loved Haydn. Um, who gave his entire, um, my, all of it that he owned uh, to build a church, to establish the church uh, debt-free for his congregation. Um, these, these are the, the teachers that he had. And, and what's remarkable about all of them is he says that he learned things from them, right? This wasn't by any means a formal education, um, but he remembers more of what he absorbed of their characters. And that's what impressed him most of all. Yeah, and then and then he goes off to to Sewanee and eventually to Harvard Law School. Uh, as I mentioned before, he says he goes to he goes to Harvard. Um, I mean, I guess partially because he he knows he knows lawyers. His family is is full of of some lawyers, so he thinks that's you know a respectable thing to do. But he <laughs> says he mostly goes to Harvard for a couple reasons: uh, one, for the theater and the music. And two, because he wanted to see some damn Yankees, damn Yankees being a single, a single, <laughs> single word. So he kind of wants to explore the country and see how these other, these other people live. And so he's, it's not really, inter even though he, he partakes of it, he doesn't seem particularly interested in degrees and in formal education. Um, but I think, you know, does well at, he seems to do well at whatever he does. Right. Yeah. He, I, I love the passage where you're, you're, you, he, as you describe, he chooses to go to Harvard <laughs> law largely because he just 
kind of wanted out of the South for a bit. He was curious about those folks up north, right? They're the damn Yankees. But I, it, it's a remarkable curiosity. What were they like, right? How did they differ from, from Northerners? And he's he's actually paints a, a remarkably sympathetic portrait. Although he has these really uh, delightful moments where he, he credits that wherever they strayed, it was largely due to having not been brought up right, which mm-hmm. he was mm-hmm. certain that he had been. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well... At the conclusion of a a series of chapters, which we've talked about on education, we get this very interesting chapter, uh, chapter 13, called Bottom Rail on Top. And he tells this story about his father's involvement in in a senatorial race. And so why don't we talk about the importance of that experience for Will Um you know, just some of some of the details of of what his father uh, had to deal with, and and kind of the the market left on on Will. Well, certainly, Leroy Percy, Will's father, was the last senator to be elected by the state legislature uh, to to the U.S. Senate right before the passage of the Seventeenth Amendment. Um, but he was only uh, it was it was it, that. Um, election involved a great deal of politicking in the state legislature. It was, and the reason that uh, Leroy Percy chose to do this was to prevent uh, James Vardaman, at the time the governor of Mississippi, from being um, elected to to the Senate. Uh, Vardaman was a, a demagogue. Uh, a race baiting demagogue. Yeah, he's um, one of the more notorious yeah. kind of Jim Crow politicians, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just extraordinary race baiting in in and just really ugly, foul things. And Leroy Percy did a lot of sort of uh, politicking with the state legislature to to narrowly get elected. But he only finished actually uh, a term of office for for a senator, and and by the time he was up for reelection, he had to truly campaign throughout the state. Uh, Vardman still wanted that seat, um, and I mean Vardman really was in the line of a, of a Huey Long, right? Uh, maybe more comical though, in in terms of being flashy and garish. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it is that time period, right? A little bit of a precursor to to a Huey Long, um, or earlier than than he, uh, or established the model for it, because because at this point Huey Long is still relatively youngish in Louisiana, if I remember my my dates correctly. So Leroy Percy travels throughout the the state of uh, Mississippi to campaign. His his son comes with him, um, and. Percy really sees that his father has no real chance of of winning. Vardman was a vulgar populist, but he was popular. And in a way, this is how Percy came to to see the people. Uh, They were attracted to that kind of populism. He, he talks about how politicians uh, or democracy is best when people elect men for their character and their wisdom. Instead, he sees that politicians are elected for their promises. Um, and he views that as a very sorry thing, uh, that, that 
the best that democracy has to say for itself is that the people may be able to recognize uh, leaders better than themselves. Um, but he saw that the people liked Vardman. Uh, in fact, I think that there's a, a phrase somewhere that um, he overheard someone describe Vardman as a slick bastard themselves, and they viewed that approvingly. And that there was um, very little that Vardman did not do underhanded to secure his, his win, even smearing Leroy Percy of, um, um, oh, I forget what the exact thing was, but of, uh, oh, a bribe. That's Some right. kind of financial corruption, yeah. I was going to say. Fin yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, a bribe, I think, financial corruption. This, this did uh, smear against Leroy Percy. And, and Will noted that this was not the first time that, you know, men of honor had been taken down by men without. But it marked him deeply that he saw this as kind of a, a beginning and a precursor. And I should note that this, this book um, was finished only months before uh, Will Percy died in 1942. And so kind of looming throughout the book in many ways is, is the rise of Stalinism and uh, Nazism, uh, which, which Will will allude to. And he views this populism that becomes popular in the United States as part and parcel with the type of mass politics and demagoguery that are going to uh, thrive on on the continent so it really marks him in, in this kind of uh way yeah he says uh on, on 153 uh as he's kind of concluding the the chapter he he says it was my first sight of the rise of the masses but not my last now we have russia and germany we have the insolence of organized labor and the insolence of capital examples both of the insolence of the parvenu we have the rise of the masses from mississippi east and back again west to mississippi the herd is on the march and when it stampedes there's bloody galore and beauty is china under its hooves so not a not a fan of mass politics for sure um if if, if i may add he uh on page uh 312 uh this is uh near the end of the book hmm. he repeats this phrase, the bottom rail was on the top, not only in Mississippi, but from Los Angeles to New York, from London to Moscow. Um, and he talks about how in, in, in Russia and uh, Germany and Italy, the demos, if I may read this, having slain its aristocrats and intellectuals and realizing its own incompetence to guide or protect itself, had submitted to tyrants who laughed at the security virtues and practiced the most vile of the survival virtues with gangster cynicism. I, he, it, is, it is a really remarkable, remarkable condemnation of, of the type of politics that he witnessed rise in, in his life, uh, from which he, he doesn't see um, abating anytime soon. So then after um, this, uh, the central chapter on this political experience, we get uh, what, four, four or five chapters on World War One, And so he ends up uh, going off to war. There are a lot of different um, threads that we could kind of pull on in, in this series of, of chapters. But we should say at the outset, it includes some letter he includes in the book some letters that he he wrote home at the time um, but then he adds lots of of reflections that he thinks you know just aren't aren't available in those letters 
So you get a kind of contemporary contemporaneous portrait of what he was thinking and feeling as he's participating in the war. And, and for, for part of the war, he's, um, you know, he's not near the front. He's, you know, working for officers who are kind of um, doing logistics for the people who are at the front. And, you know, so he's in, I think, in different French cities, but eventually he does get moved to the front and he sees, he sees battle up, up close and, and personal. So um, yeah, any, anything you want to, you want to tell us about um, what struck you about his his portrait of the First World War? Yeah, I, to, to begin with about the the getting to the front, right? This this is a um, one of the oddest features of of these chapters. The United States, of course, doesn't enter World War One until quite late, and 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 he's eager to go. Uh, he even does relief work in in Belgium under you know Herbert Hoover's whole commission for relief or whatever it was. Um, and he wants to be in the trenches. I mean, it, 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 it's almost comical in, in these earlier bits where he describes, he spoke French, which was highly valuable to, to, to the American army. So he keeps being sent places where people need someone who can speak French. And he has to pull strings. <laughs> he calls up an old college buddy and be like, please transfer me to the front. Uh, he wanted to be in the uh, trenches. He regarded, he has this great quote, where he says that, um, oh, where, where he says that without suffering, there is no real soldiering. And so he he did not want to leave the war without having truly suffered. Otherwise, he did not believe he would have done his duty. He would not have really had those experiences as as a soldier. Um, and so he is transferred uh, to the front in September of of eighteen eighteen, um, and he is there through. The end of the war, which of course is is in that November, so he's he's not in the trenches terribly long, um, but he he certainly got um, the the experiences he was looking for. To put it mildly, he he got the suffering of the soldier, and those series of letters you describe are are really quite fascinating and poignant. You you read these letters that he wrote to his mother and his father. You see how he shifted what he wrote for his his mother and his his father. And I think there's a little bit of a rhetorical trick that Percy is pulling off here for us. Um, the letters to his mother are, are, of course, much more restrained, right? And you think, ah, yes, well, to his mother, he's going to say less. But to his father, oh, oh, he's going to tell his father the truth. And then you get to the end and he says, actually, I didn't tell either of them the most important things. Uh, in a way, even from his father, he was concealing things. And, and you referenced a really delightful passage where where he says that the upon reading these he he doesn't even remember the things that he described to his parents all the things that he remembers are the things that he left out mm -hmm. and in order to understand truly what it was like to be a soldier you need both halves you you need in a way to see what the soldier writes home and then also the soldier's true reminiscences uh which is he gives us uh some very poignant stories of, of of death and suffering in 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 the trenches. And the, the, the strangest part is, I don't know if it's the strangest part, but, but you get to the end and an armistice has been declared and he's, he's a captain, he's decorated, he's going home. And there's sadness there. there. There's sadness in the return that he had a company of brothers and a shared purpose when he was in the trenches um, and that it's over. 
Um, and I know this is something we may uh, reference later, but but this is uh, a theme that that Walker Percy frequently pulls on his writing. How how there are are men who uh, enjoy um, the the sort of uh, sense of purpose that comes with belonging in 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 the army um, and kind of miss it when it's gone because uh, he saw he saw that in his uncle. Yeah, he says so. He says just just to. So listeners know um, roughly where some of the languages that we're talking about, this is in the chapter called At the Front. And after he's excerpted a few of his letters, he says, what soldiers write home about must be supplemented by what soldiers do not write home about, if one is to gain an inkling of why a soldier is more and less than a man. I would just add, too, to what you said that he, it's a pretty rough and, and at times gruesome you know portrait of 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 battle and and the front and the way that he describes his relationship too in some of the previous chapters with superiors and then some of the some of the people he was actually put in charge of of um getting some of the black soldiers ready to go to to battle some of those passages are interesting and just how he dealt with people who were formally supposed to be his superiors. I think some of them outranked him, he says, but yet he's sort of put in charge of preparing them to go to the front. And then um, how he deals with some superior officers who he doesn't view with a particular respect. And, and he kind of knows that, you know, he might do a better job if he was in their, their position. It seems like he's always, it's funny reflecting on what you just said about how the his participation in the war and in the front was so meaningful for him it gave him the sense of purpose it's a little strange right because he seems for so much of those chapters always out of step with the people who he, he he's either in charge of or who, who he's the people who are his superiors and so he, you're never quite at ease or he doesn't make you feel like he's at, at ease with with anything that's that's going on yet he does he does always seem to find a way through almost through his kind of natural social graces to do well with whoever he's working with so it's just kind of an interesting series of chapters in that respect too yeah yeah he's he's he um has a kind of natural sociability and um um he doesn't always paint himself well in everything uh but but he paints himself relatively well here right that and I think he's having a little bit of fun with the military um, superiority, right? Because in certain ways, he he is superior uh, in terms of merit to to those who are technically over him. And he, in, uh, like Major Jones, right? This is actually just a, as a quick aside, one of the best sort of passages. He talks about it being his one Machiavellian moment. This uh, Major Jones, who was stationed in Paris and who was clearly just enjoying living it up in Paris, wherever things were pretty, pretty pleasant. And he has to persuade Major Jones to allow him to be transferred. And he does so by um, appealing to a part of Major Jones that doesn't exist, a sense of shame. Oh, I know you, sir, are eating your heart out. Yeah, yeah. You would love to be in the front and to do your bit and to do your service, uh, <laughs> but but it is a and and he, it succeeds, right? Yeah, he's revolted by his own Machiavellian tactics. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, 
yeah it's a great it's a great series of I'd, I'd love to get the reaction too of some some people who've served some soldiers to see what they they make of this series of chapters because it is it is striking um some as you said sometimes he seems like a kind of an uh, of utterly a kind of fish out of water yeah but then um you know quickly he's just able to to make his way and find his way to kind of integrate himself into um into uh you know whatever whatever unit unit he's serving in or or in yeah. charge of so he he has a um the, the chapters also oscillate between kind of the comedic absurdity of war that kind of Joseph Heller catch 22 Evelyn was sort of honor kind of the absurdity of orders and things like that to kind of really the the, the pathos and, and and tragedy of war the the true heartache of trenches and 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 the the, the just misery and uh of it uh yeah. it, it's it's really quite remarkable how how well he moves between those two yeah i think that's right all right so we are getting um near the conclusion of the book he he concludes by covering um a series of events in discrete chapters uh he talks about the rise of the ku klux klan in in his uh his region in in the delta he talks about how he dealt with um a, a pretty dramatic flood in 1927. Uh, he talks about when his um, his his parents died and some of some of his ancestors uh, coming into possession of all of this all of this land. So he gives gives you a a window into the world of of sharecropping and what that would have meant uh, for the people who are working the land. Um, and then he comes and he he comes to the the point that you kind of started with when you were talking about Walker Percy when he um he loses some of his cousins and ends up adopting these these three boys. Um, so we probably don't have to have the time to talk about all of that, but um, why don't you pick an event or two, chapter two from from that list, and give us a little taste of uh, of some of those events that that happen near the end. Um, certainly, I, I I think it's worth spending a little bit of time talking about the uh, chapter the Ku Klux Klan comes and goes. The, he regards this as one of the the great challenges of of his adult life. Um, that the the Klan had been resurrected in the South and was sweeping it, and he describes his very personal and local battle for we might say the the soul of Greenville, Mississippi, so that the the Klan would not gain control of of offices such as the uh, the sheriff's uh, law enforcement, um, that that was the sort of great fear that that um, he and his father had uh, that, that they were going to win the local office. He described this is this is remarkable because it, it's also very much colored by sort of contemporary events. He he alludes to the fact that the Klan had unbeknownst to them already infiltrated, that it was a kind of a fifth column and that they were secret and and closeted. And, and he hates the Klan for for many reasons, uh, partially that they were um, he believed a money making scheme. Um, he also regarded them as hateful and ugly and destroying social trust among citizens. Uh, they were not for anything. They were merely against things. And he noted that the kind of disproving their claims was next to impossible. They made these, um, I, love, I love how he phrased it, and it's on page uh, 233, 
their claims were persuasive through the enormity and insolence of the lies. And he hmm. sees that as, I, I, I love that, the enormity and the insolence mm -hmm. of the lies. Like, I want to put that down somewhere and, and reuse it myself somewhere. That he, he sees this in line with sort of like the propaganda that Hitler uses, right? That these are in a way uh, precursors of these type of really ugly forms of mass politics that he does see on the horizon becoming uh, more and more common. He, he and his father, uh, they, they and, and other efforts uh, are made and, and uh, the, uh, I forget the name of the person that they nominated for, for, for sheriff, but they do defeat the Klan in, in Greenville. But it leaves its mark. Uh, the social trust is, is destroyed uh, to a large extent, that that is something that is lost. He ends that chapter with a really beautiful, uh, or not beautiful, but a really remarkable point that there was a, a many years later, uh, a man who, he doesn't give us his name, uh, but a man who he says was, was educated and should have known better was a supporter of the Klan and that he asked Will why he never forgave him. And he said that um, the fight against the Klan was a searchlight on character and that that man had no character and he had his number and numbers don't change. Right, right. Uh, and that, yeah, he's, he says, he says uh, early, a little bit earlier in the chapter, he's kind of summing up his attitude. He says, it's hard to conceive of the mumbo jumbo ritual of the Klan and its half-wit principles, only less absurd than the Nazi principles of Aryan superiority and Liebenstrom as worthy of an adult mind's attention. But when you're living, your self-respect and your life are threatened, you don't laugh at that which threatens. You either have the sense or courage. He says, if you have either sense or courage, you fight it. We fought it, and it was high time someone someone did. He talks about his father, right, going north and giving lectures about the Klan in, in Chicago. So it was not just him, but his his right. family kind of took took it up as, as their duty. I mean, I guess that speaks to another sense of... Um, what you spoke about early in the episode, the his kind of sense of aristocratic duty, right? That you sort of did what was what was necessary to uh, to preserve kind of decency and and goodness in your in your home. And if you don't do that, you're not a very good human being. Yeah, he he has a um, a remarkable amount of care for his area and. Let me see if I can find this. This is actually from, um, it's actually a, a letter that his father wrote. Um, it's on 152. This was actually from his father's campaign, his failed campaign for, for the Senate, in, in which his father talks, if I may just quote this, uh, a good deal, oh, here we go. If I can keep this small corner of the United States in which I reside comparatively clean and decent in politics and fit for a man to live in, and in such a condition that he may not be ashamed to pass it on to his children, I will have accomplished all that I hope to do. And I believe that this passage uh, is, is how Will Percy also viewed himself, right? Uh, that that we are are in a way called to greatness, right? I mean, I mean, clearly. Uh, Will Percy loves uh, the idea of excellence and greatness, um, but he also had a strong appreciation for achieving it 
on one's scale, within one's means, in, in one's particular corner of the world. And I, I think this is one of the, the most remarkable aspects of, of Will Percy, this intense concern for, for what is, is near you and what is within your control and your power. Yeah, that's true. That's nicely put. I want to ask you to to conclude here about um, about some of the concrete influences on on Walker Percy and, and his writing. But uh, before we get to that, may, maybe I'll just ask you to reflect for a few minutes on um, just the kind of book this is. I mean, it's it's obviously a autobiography memoir. It gives you a, a portrait of a region. It gives you a portrait of a certain kind of vanishing world that gives you a portrait of a certain kind of stoic aristocratic type which you don't which you don't see very often um but um i guess how would you describe the book just in in general terms um what you know does it does it fill kind of obvious gaps if you're if you're thinking about you know trying to learn about different aspects of of american political and cultural life i mean what what sort of gaps does it fill just say a few things about um you know it's the the character of the of the book in in general terms uh sure i i, I think that uh will percy represents a, a really unique strain of of american thought um he's like a counterpoint to um many of the, the more typical American uh, themes and ideals, right? Um, as you say, he's, he's an aristocrat, he's a stoic, um, he's, he's proud of not being part of the demos, which you viewed as being vulgar and always on the make. Um, yeah, but kind of an interesting comparison right off the bat would be to Franklin, right? I mean, yeah. that sort of classic Franklin self-made autobiography autobiography um kind of the bourgeois virtues right yeah, versus has, this kind of or much different understanding of virtue right but but also present during the founding right yeah. um uh will percy is um and maybe the best way of thinking about it, not only was he a stoic he was a southern stoic and one of the things that uh walker percy uh spent a lot of time in his writings discussing is that in in the, the sort of antebellum and even immediate um, post-war era, uh, the South, the Southern leadership, aristocrats and planter class were really more pagan, influenced uh, by uh, the, the, the ancient pagans more so than by Christians. Uh, the sort of, we, we tend today think of the South as the Bible Belt and all that, but, but that's actually a, a later development. Um, I'm thinking of like Thomas Jefferson, right? proudly proclaimed himself an Epicurean. Mm -hmm. um, the, the kind of education of, of a Southerner during that time period was steeped in the classics. They saw themselves more as uh, contemporaries of, of, of the ancient world, really, than having much connection in some ways to, to sort of more modern heroes. Their heroes were Cato and Brutus. I mean, this even shows up in all the letters that, you know, you go back and you read and, you know, as a teacher, you're always trying to explain like, oh, it's this Cato yeah. <laughs> uh, or Brutus <laughs> or, or, uh, or, or all the other characters, Helvidius, Specificus, you know, these, these uh, Publius uh, characters that they, they use. Uh, so there is a type of strand in American thought that, um, 
is about uh, greatness and excellence over what is common and, and good enough. Um, you know, James Madison famously wrote that enlightened statesmen may not be at the helm, but occasionally America might be in need of them. It, it, it's useful to sometimes have a, a counterpoint to that. I mean, I like Franklin and bourgeois values uh, a lot, but uh, sometimes the uh, remembering uh, that it, it's an invitation to sort of personal excellence and, and greatness, a, a reminder that good government needs good people, right? Institutional arrangements always aren't enough to sort of carry you through, right? Uh, that the soul longs for, for beauty and truth and honor, nobility, courage, um, self-possession and gentility, uh, which are sometimes in short supply in the United States, or at least there's often... It's not the dominant thread here, right? Um, that we are also born in, into this role as members of families and we already have citizens. We're already members of families and citizens um, with duties and, da uh, duties and joys attached to those relationships. Um, and that those are, are things that, that Percy reminds us of. Um, and so he provides sometimes a, a very useful reminder of of those elements that that are native to the United States and sometimes provide a useful uh, corrective or or at least a useful counter argument yeah to to sort of a more typical bourgeois values uh, American themes of success yeah he says early in the book that um, his, his father taught him that it's your duty to get involved in public affairs and make the world a better place, but that your expectations for your effectiveness in that area should be very low, <laughs> right? So you should not be, you, you should do it because it's your duty, but you should be quite pessimistic that you'll have any effect. And then that's sort of the first half of the advice. And the second half was something like, but your first duty is always to kind of take care of your own, your own soul. So it's, yeah, it's not, that is not the, I would say the mainstream of <laughs> American kind of public philosophy at all, right. right? It's much more, much more pessimistic, much more kind of inward, inward looking. Um, and so in, in that sense too, it's, it's a contrast to, um, to kind of Ralph Ellison's, we, that was my first episode in the series, uh, that kind of Ellisonian understanding the importance of of America being a kind of new new hope and um, the American experiment kind of culturally and politically being this dramatically new wonderful opportunity right that's that's also very different from from this um, that said I do see some overlap with Ellison and Murray and um, and Percy in the in the sense that uh, the way that that Percy talks about one of the ways that Percy talks about blacks, which you haven't discussed, I, th I think he says explicitly somewhere that they are, whatever else they might be, they are deeply American. They've developed their own kind of folklore. Their music is interesting. You know, it's this interesting hybrid of, of influences. And, you know, even though they might not have any um, concrete, explicit connection to, to Africa, um, you know, that doesn't mean that they're somehow... Uh, tabula rasa without any kind of interesting cultural marks and, and so um even even though murray doesn't have much uh 
for good reason, doesn't have much nice to say about Percy's racial attitudes. Um, they actually have some similar understandings of the kind of the folklorish right. culture of the South. Yeah, it, it it it's it's remarkable those those praises uh, that that he has that shines through. Uh, there's there's an incident in 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 um, Percy's life that's um, worth relating, which is that um, he of course had uh, poets and musicians and all sorts of artists in his town in in his house, and he had Langston Hughes. Uh, stay in his house. And this was, of course, to the aghast of, of Greenville society. And he even introduced Hughes at a, a poetry reading, or, or, or I think maybe it was a lectureship. Um, and he referred to Hughes as my fellow poet. Um, Percy had capacity to recognize excellence and greatness in others. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't remember that. So let's, maybe we can end, just say a few things about what you think um, the you know, lasting visible influences on on Walker Percy are? I mean, I, I guess either as a human being or as a as a novelist, um, Will Percy did never wrote novels. We have this this memoir, and we have a a, a lot of poetry. I, I actually have his uh, collected poems. It's a big, pretty thick thick volume. Um, so never never turned to novel writing, but uh, he he was first and foremost a poet um and so what what sort of Im impression do you think is is evident in um in the novelist walker percy um walker said of himself that he defined himself um whether in agreement or in opposition to will uh he took very seriously his his will uh will's stoicism that it was a real alternative to the kind of crass materialism of, of democracy, the uh, kind of Lockean joyless quest for joy, that the good life that his, his uh, uncle offered him was a real alternative, that democracy can and does promote indifference among individuals, right? Uh, that kind of heart disease of individualism that, that Tocqueville talks about, um, and that uh, Will's way uh, presented real duties and obligations to others, a real sense of care and, and obligation for, for others, despite you know success or, or failure. Um, but Walker, engages in these ideas as as meaningful alternatives even as he rejects uh his his uncle's uh thought in certain respects certainly on with questions on on race uh but the the winter wintry inter inner citadel of marcus aurelius however was too lonely and i think as too lonely for walker too lonely for anyone i think <laughs> <laughs> um I, 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 this is, this is, I think, kind of uh, Percy's, or, or sorry, I should, this is the problem. Uh, they're, they got almost virtually the same initials. Right. Um, Walker, um, I mean, I mean, just to sort of elaborate here, uh, there's that great chapter where he's abroad and, and he, and, and Will says he learned loneliness. Loneliness was his companion. It, it's one thing to bear up nobly under hardship, uh, but, but Will's, 
loneliness, right? Even the image of, of the, the man carrying the lantern, the guard along the levee wall, there, there's just mm -hmm. sort of an intense loneliness there, which is strange because his house was constantly full of people, right? He had three small children and, and the, the top uh, floor of, of the Percy house was a series of, of rooms that were almost constantly filled with with guests and visitors or even people just hard on their luck. And and so Will Will is better than he says. Uh, he, he's not even the the wintry adherent to Marcus Aurelius that he seems to be. And, and I think Walker takes him to task for not being a, a true corrective to the kind of um, isolating individualism that often happens in democracy, that it it actually in a way doesn't really draw us towards others um, the way that uh, Walker believed that uh, Christianity does. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, Elizabeth, this has been a really fun conversation. I appreciate you coming on the podcast and discussing this really interesting figure, William Alexander Percy and his uh, memoir, Lanterns on the Levee. Thank you so much, Blag. I really appreciated being here. Yeah, it's been great fun. We'll talk to you soon. Certainly. You've been listening to Enduring Interest, a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the E-I-Pod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time on Enduring Interest. Yeah.